left-wing liberalism began in a pub with Canon David Hodgson, who's sitting over here, and myself, and we went out for lunch, uh, and we were talking about having a home for all those woolly liberals. Um, and don't you get fed up with the prefix woolly? Uh, or if you're, if you're a liberal, by definition, woolly. So we thought it would be nice to, to set something up that, uh, well, really debunk that idea that if you're liberal, by definition, you're, you're woolly, which is a kind of all one word, woolly liberal. So we want to get rid of that prefix. And so that's really how the thing began to emerge. And thought we'd, we'd pinch the name affirming from a, affirming Catholicism, which is a, a, good, uh, a good word. So we became affirming liberalism. Why? What's the vision of affirming liberalism? Well, it's to affirm liberalism within Christianity. It does exactly what it says on the... Yeah. Um, and uh, people used to say, well, because there are two wings in the church. There's the, there's the evangelical wing, and there's the Catholic wing, to which the liberals say, yes, and the fuselage is the liberals. <laughs> so... Affirming liberalism is a bit of a home for people who feel they want a home for this type of Christian thinking. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength and your mind. And so that's something that we, we seek to do uh, as affirming liberalism, which isn't to say, of course, that other strands of the Christian church don't do that. And it's stating the obvious, but it seems to me it's just an important thing to underline what affirming liberalism is about. And the Church of England says in its uh, website that the Church of England is uh, a comprehensive church enriched by three strands, the evangelical, the Catholic and the liberal. Scripture, tradition and reason. And the emphases go with those titles, evangelical emphasis on scripture, Catholic emphasis on tradition, and the liberal emphasis on reason. That's what the Church of England website says in rather broad brush terms. Of course, we know it's far more complicated than that. And so what I don't think affirming liberalism is, is, uh, is a splinter group. In fact, the strap line is building bridges, not barriers. And I think that's important. Uh, building bridges to whom and what for? Well, to build bridges between the other traditions, the other emphases within the Church of England, essentially, but also to look beyond the, the boundaries of the Church of England, which is why we changed the name this year to an Anglican network supporting liberal Christians of all denominations. And so it's broadened its focus, and I know there's people here from all sorts of, of different Christian denominations, and that is something I really welcome, actually, development from last year. But also... I think, importantly, to build bridges between Christianity and other faiths as well. And I think that's an important emphasis of, of what affirming liberalism is seeking to do. If you want further information, go onto the website, and there are ten points there of what a liberal Christianity might look like. And more importantly, Professor Ward's lectures there from last year, where he said, uh, why the future, this is rather uncontroversial, uh, why the future belongs to liberal Christianity or liberal Christian faith. And there's a wonderful lecture there which he gave last year, and he's become the president of affirming liberalism, along with all his other accolades, which I'm going to give you in a moment. So it's building bridges, not barriers. Who's it for? Well, somebody like Michael. Michael is, uh, changed the name, 
But Michael is the husband of somebody who comes to our church who would not normally come to church because he can't get through the, the intellectual problems that he perceives exist for a thinking faith. So Michael said, I, I, can't, I can't really get through that, that faith barrier because he was told at school and still believes it that faith is committing intellectual suicide. And he says that faith, the definition is believing wholeheartedly that which you know to be untrue. <laughs> so Michael has now started coming to church a little bit. We had a series of lectures on science and religion uh, to celebrate the, the bicentennial of Darwin. And uh, there were sellout lectures at our little church in, in Berkshire. We had over 120 people come to those. Michael came. And, and so he's now beginning to realise there is, there is no incompatibility between good thinking and good faith. So it's an evangelism through education, which is part of the vision that drives this and should drive our churches, I believe. Or the other band of people that sit in my church, whom I love, they call themselves, well, we're the hopeful agnostics. And they sit there quite quietly, not wanting to raise the question. They say, no, no, raise the questions. This is important. The hopeful agnostics. So that leads us, therefore, to today's title, A Credible Faith for, for Growing Churches. A Credible Faith. That's the, maybe the emphasis of this morning. We're looking at credible faith in relation to, to science uh, and religion and Keith's lecture is going to be why the scientific worldview confirms a liberal Christian faith. Again, a, a very interesting title, which I'm looking forward to, to hearing what he has to say. Professor Ward, of course, has written a number of books on this theme. Pascal's Fire, The Big Questions, a wonderful book, again, that tackles these big issues of, of science and religion. And he said he comes from the position of initially being, being an atheist. That was his starting point. And so he writes from a position of understanding what it is to be an atheist and then growing and coming into faith. And he's now, as you will know, an ordained priest in the Church of England, was canon of Christ Church in Oxford until 2003, he is the Regis Professor, now Emeritus, but was Regis Professor of Divinity here at the University of Oxford for, for over a decade. Numerous prestigious public lectures, many of you will have heard him before. He's a member of the Governing Council of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, visiting professor of several universities in America, widely travelled, and is giving so much of his energy and commitment to, to helping us uh, to think through these, these huge questions of, of science and religion. He says he's not a professional scientist, but it's good science, and he's checked all the scientific facts that accompany his books with professional scientists. And so, as I, Richard Warden, now the chair of uh, Affirming Liberalism, going to make way for the real thing, Thank you for listening for the, the last few minutes, and Professor Ward, it's a great pleasure to have you. He was my tutor many years ago when he was the F.D. Morris Professor at King's in London. I did my master's degree under him, uh, and so he takes the blame. Uh, <laughs> my parishioners might tell you, but 
truly delighted to, to welcome him. And uh, Professor Keith Ward, we welcome you. Thank you, Richard. I must admit, I feel as if I'm about to get an honorary degree, because that's what usually happens here. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it is going to happen. It might seem rather odd uh, to say that uh, the scientific worldview confirms a liberal Christian faith, because we know that in Oxford, not too far from here, there are some eminent scientists who say that scientific worldviews are completely incompatible with any form of religious faith at all. Uh, they have made a lot of noise. They've become known as the new atheists, I suppose. And uh, there are um, qu quite a lot of people around who have swallowed the story that science and faith are incompatible. So I set myself quite a task, and in fact, I'm not going to quite fulfill the promise of my title. What I'm really going to say is that one interpretation of the scientific worldview confirms some parts of a liberal Christian faith. <laughs> but it wasn't quite such a good title, really. <laughs> Academics always qualify. You, say, you don't say God exists. You say, well, in some respects, some people might believe that on the whole, it could be said. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so I may say some things rather unqualified, but I'm prepared to make the qualifications um, later on in private. So what's the relation between science and religious faith? In fact, I think the story that the new atheists give is completely historically wrong. They lack any sense of history at all. And they lack any ability to answer the question why it is that modern science, in fact, has grown and flourished in a basically Christian sort of society. We know that there was science in uh, 10th century Islam, that uh, there was science in ancient Greece, there was science in China and India, but we also know that all those sciences came to an end. They stopped. And it's quite a problem. Why didn't they continue? Um, they just died out. Uh, and in Europe, on the other hand, uh, science began again in the 16th century, perhaps rather earlier than that, but certainly in the 16th century, and it has continued and progressed and become the thing we know today. So that on the whole, people now talk about Western science, though that's not correct. It's just science. It's not particularly Western. But it did grow in a Europe of a particular time in the 16th century. Now, there are probably many complicated reasons for that. Well, there are, but I would pick out uh, two major reasons. And one of them is connected with, if not the Christian faith, at least the Abrahamic faith, faith in one God, who is the God of wisdom and reason. And remember that in the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, which is the reason, the intellect, the wisdom of God, uh, and that word was God. So wisdom is a primary attribute of God. Whatever God does will be wise. And also in the book of Genesis it says that human beings were made in the image of God. And that partly means that human beings share to some extent the mind of God. They are capable of understanding the ways of God at least to some extent. That's part of what it means to be in the image of God. 
So in that tradition, Jewish and Christian and Muslim too, there is uh, a foundational belief that the universe is not just a chaos, an anarchy that couldn't be understood. It is rather unintelligible, uh, an elegant, a wise, a reasonable universe which can be understood by human beings. Now without that belief you cannot do science. If you think the universe is just such that anything might happen, then you can't do science. And one of the strange things about the modern world is that some people, well, I will mention the name, Richard Dawkins, Professor Dawkins, <laughs> are quite great devotees, really, of the philosophy of David Hume. Uh, and David Hume was indeed a very good writer and a very um, provocative philosopher in the 18th century. I have to tell you that Hume wasn't the most famous philosopher of the day. Uh, Thomas Reed was, and I shall say a little bit more about Thomas Reed in a while, but uh, David Hume has become a standard philosopher to read in philosophy classes. But David Hume's view is a very radical scepticism, which he only over overcame by playing billiards. And he said, you know, when you've done a lot of philosophy, the only remedy is to go and play billiards. Well, and, uh, and that's it, because for Hume, in the end, a philosopher of common sense, that is, you accept what common sense people say about the world, but you can't rationally justify it. Hume's position was, using reason, you can't justify anything, at least a total scepticism. You can't even prove that tomorrow is going to be like today. You can't prove that there are any laws of nature, you can't prove that there are any necessities that you could follow, and therefore, of course, you never know what's going to happen next. And David Hume's um, problem of induction, as we tell first-year philosophy students it's called, is the problem of how you know uh, that the sun will rise tomorrow. And the answer, it's risen every day so far, is no answer, because, of course, that could just be an accident. And for David Hume, it is an accident, and he was perpetually surprised. Oh. <laughs> now, there's something odd about a view which says, uh, we really don't know what's going to happen next. Anything might happen, but Hume really did philosophically believe that. He thought, there are no necessities in nature. There's nothing makes one thing happen. There doesn't have to be a reason why things happen. They just happen, and you have to put up with it. Now, if you believe that, if you are radically sceptical, you cannot do science. To do science at all, you have to believe the dogma or the belief uh, that uh, every event has a cause, that there is a reason why things happen. If you're doing uh, an experiment in chemistry and something goes wrong with it, you don't just turn around and say, well, you know, uh, I'm not surprised that happened. Uh, it's not my fault. Uh, it's just one of those things that occasionally happen. Nobody would accept that explanation. People would say, no, uh, actually you've got it wrong. Uh, every cause has an effect. Every effect has a cause. There is a reason why things happen. So the rationality of the universe is a presupposition of science. And I think it's perfectly fair to call that a faith. It's a faith because you trust that nature is regular and dependable. But you couldn't possibly prove it because in terms of what could you prove it? Uh, just the regularity of nature. But that's what you're trying to prove. So it's not a proof. So for David Hume and for almost every philosopher, there is no question of proving the most fundamental things we believe. You can't prove them. 
The best you can do is to say, well, they're foundations of the other things that we believe. They're conditions of the possibility of getting on in the world. Uh, so a condition of the possibility of doing science is you believe that there is a cause for every effect. And you can discover what it is. And if you're a good mathematician, you may discover it. And of course, physicists these days go a long way beyond observation. One of the things David Hume said was, uh, what hope have we possibly got of understanding the beginning of a universe? We couldn't possibly do that because nobody was there. And anyway, there was only one universe, so how could you generalize from that to how universes begin? He said, that's just an absurdity. Well, there are chairs of this absurdity in Oxford University. <laughs> Every day we read about what cosmologists tell us about the first three milliseconds of the universe. And it's no use saying to them, but you weren't there. <laughs> They've got reasons, of course, for what they're saying, but physics now goes far beyond observation. And you could take me uh, to CERN in Geneva and put me in the Large Hadron Collider, and you could leave me there for as long as you like, uh, and you could attempt to teach me all the mathematics you could teach me, and I still wouldn't know how to find a Higgs boson. <laughs> I wouldn't know exactly what a Higgs boson was, and I wouldn't know that I'd found it if I did find it. <laughs> and I think most people in this room, and most people in this world, are in that position. There are only probably a thousand people who know what it would be to find a Higgs boson. And they've managed to con the rest of us into paying for the research. <laughs> So physics has got so very, very complicated and mathematical that observations alone are never going to answer any problem in physics. And that's why biologists often misunderstand the nature of science. Because biologists think science is about looking at things and manipulating them and picking them up with tweezers and putting them somewhere else. But physicists can't do that with electrons or with the universe. And physicists know that fundamental science is about the mathematical understanding of the beauty and elegance of the universe. And that's what it's about. So fundamental science, and I mean physics. And when I say physics, I mean quantum physics. And when I say quantum physics, I mean the sort of stuff uh, that Niels Bohr did and Werner Heisenberg. Uh, and that is the basis of computers and mobile telephones and almost everything we use these days. But it's as far removed from ordinary common sense observation as you could get. Common sense observation will tell you we live in a world of three-dimensional solid objects in space. Three-dimensional space. But any physicist will tell you, no, no, we don't live in a world anything like that at all. We actually live in an 11-dimensional uh, continuum, seven of whose dimensions are rolled up very small so you can't see them. And in any case, you're only a set of probability waves and you think you're solid, but actually you're almost all totally empty space. <laughs> Do you believe that? <laughs> well... Uh, it's difficult. Do you believe common sense, what we think we see, or do you believe what uh, contemporary physicists tell us the world is like? It's a very difficult question to answer. But I go with Plato, and I say, this is just a world of appearances. What we see and feel and touch, the colours, the sounds, the senses we have, those are appearances. The reality is a purely mathematical reality, and it's pure mathematicians. It is the mind which can tell you what it's like. Or if it doesn't tell you what it's like, you've got no hope of finding out what it's like. 
Right? So you could say, as some people do, Bernard Despagnier, one of the great quantum physicists, uh, as he says, uh, beneath what we observe in physics, there is, or what we speculate about, what we make up uh, mathematical theorems about, that is what he calls veiled reality, reality under a veil. And we'll never be able to access that and know what that is. But we can make mathematical statements about it. And that's how you can talk about the beginning of the universe and how Stephen Hawking can ask questions like, um, at what point in the universe did time turn into space? So there you are. You can read that on page 321 of <laughs> Brief History of Time. Uh, so once you get space and time as dimensions together, you can actually turn one into the other. And so one of Stephen Hawking's playful remarks is that the universe never actually began, as most physicists think, because time turned into space before it could get started. <laughs> Well, it's a strange world in physics. I mean, I, I take a lot of comfort from the fact that as a theologian, my world is less strange uh, than that of physics. <laughs> I just believe in God, for goodness sake. <laughs> so, uh, how did all that stuff get started? Well, what I'm saying, my first point really, is that you have to believe in the intelligibility of the universe. You have to believe in the power of the mind to understand that intelligibility. Now, that doesn't make you a theist, but believing there is a God who constructs the universe on intelligible principles is a very good preparation for that sort of science. And if you don't believe in laws of nature at all, science won't get going, you'll be left at the level of recording regularities, and that's all you'll do. That's what Aristotle did. He was very good in his day as a scientist, but all he could do was record regularities. He never formed the idea of a law of nature, which was mathematically describable, and which you could use to predict things that were going to happen in the future. That was an invention of Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton said he invented it because he believed in God. He's quite explicit about that. He says that, uh, I just thought, if this universe is uh, the product of a wise and intelligent maker, uh, then that person would be rather like me. <laughs> and if I had made the universe, I would have made it so that it followed the most beautiful and simple set of principles, like the laws of motion and mechanics, which gave rise to the most interesting set of effects. So I wrote down what these laws would be, and lo and behold, they were. God was like me, after all. <laughs> so Newton saw himself as discovering the laws that God had placed in nature. And I think one reason, let me make a provocative remark here, one reason why Muslim science did not progress after the 10th century was that in fact, there came about a sort of theological view, which you could call occasionalism. That is, that God directly made everything happen, moment by moment, but didn't follow any laws. So the idea of a law of nature never actually came about in Muslim science. You didn't get that idea, because God could do anything at any time. Now, Newton, being a devout believer, did think... If it, he was a Unitarian, in case you didn't know, but he, he was that. You can be a devout Unitarian. Unitarian. <laughs> and uh, so Newton did think God could do anything he wanted, but he importantly thought that most of the time, the vast majority of the time, God did construct the universe in accordance with natural laws. So that was quite an important thought. Of course, there have been Christian occasionalists too. But it's not helpful to science to say, because again, if there's a God who could do anything at any time, science doesn't get going, because you can never predict what's going to happen next, because God might stop it happening. 
I mean, the odd miracle doesn't make a difference. If you have just one virgin birth, for example, and I'm sure everybody here believes the virgin birth, uh, this being the liberal uh, affirmation group, uh, we affirm that people think there was one. And uh, what... Uh, <laughs> So, if, if a virgin birth occurs just once in human history, that's not going to break the laws of nature. Uh, you, it's just going to be a blip on the landscape, and you'd have to explain why it happened, because there is a reason for everything, of course. Uh, and to say God did it is not a very good reason, because it doesn't get you very far. So, a principle of science has to be, it's not good enough to say God did it. You have to find a law in accordance with which it happens. That law doesn't have to be absolute. Physicists now don't think, on the whole, that laws of nature are absolute, but they're there. They do govern things that happen. So that's the first necessity of science, a belief in the intelligibility of nature. You may know of a very uh, virulent atheist, atheist in Oxford, uh, in fact, who's at uh, Lincoln College, I believe, where we're going for lunch, so we'll have a chance to pelt him with stones. Uh, <laughs> uh, cotton wool stones. Being liberal, we don't have hard stones. And he... Uh, holds uh, that religion is a disease of the mind. I mean, he says to me in public quite often, really, that uh, I've got um, too much oxygen in my brain, and uh, that's why I have religious beliefs. And I, I've offered him some oxygen many times, but he won't uh, accept it. But the thing about Peter Atkins is, he's not a materialist. Peter Atkins actually thinks that the basis of this physical universe is mathematical reality, is a structure of uh, mathematical truths which are eternal and timeless and beyond space and time altogether, and that the human mind is capable of understanding such truths, and he thinks it will understand such truths. Strangely enough, he doesn't think that's a religious belief. Which is very odd, because it's very close to a religious belief, at least. What it says, in common with what believers in God say, is that there is something beyond this space-time universe, something which is eternal, something which is necessarily what it is, and something which is the real but non-physical basis of this physical universe. Well, if that's not God, it's getting pretty near. Uh, he doesn't like God, because for him... God is the parking attendant who will, for his favoured pupils, find parking spaces when they ask. Uh, and he doesn't like that God, so he doesn't like an arbitrary, whimsical God, especially one who goes around zapping people every now and again. But he does like the thought of an intelligible basis of reality, which is beyond the world of appearances. And I think he needs to be reminded, uh, well, I have done, it's a waste of time, but he should. <laughs> but he should be reminded that actually that's the classical Christian view of God. If you read Thomas Aquinas, for example, it, way back from the 13th century, he would say God is not a being, God is not a substance, God is being itself. Now, whatever that means, it's not, it doesn't even make grammatical sense. Essay is just the word to be, so it's as if you're saying God is to be-ness. It's not an actual concrete thing. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of that because uh, that would take about three years, but uh, the point is he does, Aquinas does not think God is a finite person who answers requests if he feels like it and has to wait to decide whether or not there are enough car parking spaces or whether he has to create another one miraculously. <laughs> Aquinas never thought God was like that. So uh, he thought that God is timeless, is beyond time, and that, for example, the answers to prayer are decreed from all eternity. So for Aquinas, you should pray, God will answer your prayer, but it's not a question of 
you asking something that God hadn't thought of, and then God thinking, what am I going to do about this? Because I've got 25 prayers for rain, uh, 64 against. Am I a Democrat? Um, and of course, being a philosophical sort of God, he can't decide. <laughs> but God is not like that. God is not in an ordinary sense a person who has to make his mind up. There are, there are eternal decrees of God and they give rise to whatever happens. All I'm saying, that's the traditional, it is really the traditional Christian view of God. And somehow, if you're a traditional Orthodox Christian, you have to fit your beliefs about God into that. As a matter of fact, that makes traditional Orthodox Christianity at a theological level much closer to liberalism than you might think, and much closer to liberalism than popular Christianity, which does have a God who finds you car parking spaces. And so it, there is a, a, a very nice bridge between uh, very orthodox uh, traditions in Christianity and a liberal view, which is largely agnostic, which says God is beyond our comprehension, but God is supremely intelligible nonetheless. We fail to understand God because he has more intelligibility than our minds can cope with, not because he has less. So that's just to say, well, there are people like Peter Atkins who say they're great atheists, uh, but actually they do believe in this eternal, intelligible reality as the basis of appearances in space and time. And that's one important uh, aspect of science. Peter Atkins constantly argues that believers in God don't believe that, uh, and that believers in God are pessimists because they think we'll never understand the mysteries of the universe on the ground that God is so mysterious we'll never understand God. But, of course, uh, Peter doesn't yet understand all the mysteries of the universe himself. He just thinks that um, in time somebody will. And you have to ask, well, it, it's not beyond possibilities of the human mind to understand everything there is to understand about the created universe. All Christians are saying when they say that God is incomprehensible is that there is infinitely more of God than this created universe. And you'd be a bit arrogant to be sure that you were going to understand all of it, because I presume you'd have to be omniscient, you'd have to be God to understand uh, God. So I don't think Christians are pessimists about science. In fact, they, they share his belief that the intelligible universe can be understood because God has created us with minds which are capable of understanding it. Unfortunately, God has only created about a thousand minds which are capable of understanding it. But the rest of us can get some idea of it anyway, and we can use our mobile phones so we, <laughs> we can get the benefits of it. So that's the first part, but there's, there's another part too about uh, how science uh, has a very close intellectual affinity uh, with theistic beliefs. So far I've just talked about belief in God. But there's something else about belief in God which we're all very keenly aware of, and that is that people who believe in God, in fact people who believe in anything, are apt to resent and dislike people who don't agree with them. And so they tend to repress them if they possibly can. And it has to be said, it's characteristic of all great organizations, from your local tennis club uh, down to um, the Catholic Church, the largest religious institute in the world, to try and prevent people expressing opinions with which they disagree. So all human institutions get repressive. They throw you out of the club if you don't keep their rules. And churches are no different. And I fear that it's true of even the most liberal churches, that if you're not liberal enough, you'll get thrown out. 
it's just human nature, really. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to live with people whose views are radically different from your own. Uh, if you support Obama, how do you live with somebody who supports Bush? Well, at a distance. <laughs> so, uh, there are ways of negotiating these things, but, but it's not easy to do. So, religion is just the same. So, repression of beliefs is part of religious life and has been, especially when Christianity was, as it was, part of two great empires, the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Byzantine Roman Empire. These were certainly repressive, militaristic, colonialist, if you like, empires, and Christianity was their official ideology, and so Christianity shared those repressive characteristics. And that is why the second thing you need for the growth of modern science is escape from repression, ideological repression. Not just religious, most ideological repression is not religious, it's communist in the modern world, uh, or it could be fascist. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with religion. But nevertheless, uh, it's a feature of human life. And that is why the Protestant Reformation was necessary for the growth of science. The Protestant Reformation was uh, a reformation which called for and entailed the possibility of criticism of the highest religious authorities. It called for criticism of people who said they were telling you what God said. You can't be a Protestant without believing that most of the people who tell you what God says are mistaken. Right? That's a, the first belief of Protestantism. You don't often find it stated, I believe most other people are wrong. <laughs> but it actually is entailed in the very existence of Protestantism because the Christian church claiming the right to interpret the Bible and to say what God's spirit is revealing to the world was rejected by Protestants. So it's very ironic if Protestants then say, well, they didn't say what God's revelation really was, but I am saying that. <laughs> and then as a Protestant, of course, you know that there are 20 other Protestant sects saying that God is saying something different. So you're already into a pluralistic society. You're already into a society where there are different versions of truth. And that's the important thing. Most of the early scientists in Europe were both Christian and free-thinking. Isaac Newton's a very good example. Isaac Newton did not believe in the Trinity, uh, but he couldn't say so because he was a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. <laughs> so he had beliefs which were free-thinking. They, they weren't really conformist to any particular view. And conformity is probably the enemy of good science. You need to think uh, in a different way from other people if you're going to make good discoveries. And you need to have a society which encourages you to think differently. Uh, even in science, of course, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, and you find that if anybody wants to make their way as a scientist in the modern world, they do have to conform to what their professor tells them, at least at first. And one of the sad things, in fact, about scientific education in our universities is that people who read sciences usually have to spend all that time just learning stuff, not thinking about stuff. You haven't got time to think about it. Somebody says to you, Einstein's theory of relativity is this. Learn these 25 equations. Okay? So you don't say, is it true? If you say to your physics teacher, uh, I wonder if Einstein's theory of relativity is true, they say, 
Uh, look, you're going to fail if you say that sort of thing. <laughs> so at, at an undergraduate level, it's mostly learning. And that, that's one of the big distinctions between humanities disciplines and scientific disciplines. Sadly, a lot of scientific disciplines, it's all learning facts. And you don't question them because they're right. Now, that's not what science really is like, but it's what it looks like to many people who learn science. Whereas if you do English literature, in fact, you're taught that what everybody else has said is wrong. That's a very different way of approaching uh, the intellectual life. Perhaps they're both extremes, you know, somewhere in the middle. There must be somewhere that's right, and that's theology. <laughs> so uh, you need that free thinking. You need informed critical inquiry, and that is the essence of liberalism. Okay? I don't think a liberal is a person who has lots of radical beliefs about things. Uh, a liberal is a person who, think, who uh, prizes and defends the right to think critically and in an informed way about the things they believe. It will lead, of course, inevitably to some people who question a lot, but it will lead some people to become more sure in their beliefs, subjectively sure, though even those people who are sure will have to admit that there are equally intelligent people who come to different conclusions. And that's the liberal conclusion, right? That I think, I sincerely think this, for example, I sincerely think there is a God, and I sincerely think that God is revealed in the person of Jesus. But I know that there are people just as intelligent and informed as I am who don't believe that. So I can't go around saying, what I think is just obviously true. And you are either, I'm sorry to say, and I say it with great respect, depraved and corrupt. <laughs> You can't say that. So if you really value freedom of critical inquiry and freedom of belief, that changes the nature of your own belief. It changes the way you believe things. You no longer say, I don't, you don't say, I don't believe them. But you say, I believe them to the best of my ability, and I really do believe them, but I accept that my belief is not the only sensible one, and there are good objections to it, and I see what they are. And that, for me, is what liberal believing is. And all Christians have an obligation to think like that because, of course, truth is what Christians are supposed to be looking for. And I think the breakthrough in about the 16th century in Europe, in human thought, uh, was really to say definitively that the best way to find truth is to criticize other people. Not negatively, but in an informed way to be free to question their theory and to put it to the test. And that that's a way of finding truth. It's not a way of, dis, of disguising truth. Uh, you know, the old Roman Catholic idea now abolished of having an index of books that people weren't allowed to read is fundamentally illiberal. That's an anti-liberal move. There should be no book that you're not allowed to read. And, uh, of course, not all books are good, but that's a different question. And uh, unfortunately, not everybody agrees with me about what's good. But, you know, that's life. And you have to say, well, you have to allow these differences, if you think they're conscientious and informed, that's quite important, not just arising from ignorance, have to be allowed. So that's the second part that is necessary for the growth of science. It is free thinking. You've got the basis of a theistic version of the universe, but also uh, you have a version which allows freedom uh, to explore new ways in which this is true. For example, in the history of theology alone, as I said, the classical view of God was that God is timeless, completely beyond time. 
But that, if you leads to certain consequences, which not everybody would like very much. For example, that everything is in some sense already determined. When I say already, um, it's a very difficult not to say already, but you mean eternally determined, right? timelessly determined. So at least you can't change it. And that gives rise to a doctrine of very strong predestination. That uh, uh, it, you can't change anything uh, because it's all fixed. God didn't have any time to change his mind, and so God just did what God did, timelessly. You know, if you're timeless, you can only do one thing, okay? Because otherwise you'd have to do things one after another, and you can't do that. Uh, so the one thing God did, on the classical view, is create the universe. So God didn't create the universe at the beginning. God created the beginning and the middle and the end at the same time or if not at the same time, at least in the same act, because there weren't two acts. Okay. Now, some nice things followed from that. Well, one nice thing that follows from that is that the world wasn't created in six days, thank goodness, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> but some nasty things, perhaps human freedom becomes very iffy, and you say, how, you know, the old philosophical problem, how can I be free if everything's fixed already? Uh, I, or the future is already there. You know, Einstein thought this was one of the great comforts of physics. Einstein believes that the whole of time actually exists from beginning to end. It's all actually there. And he thought that was a great comfort to him, uh, that things that were in the past weren't actually gone. They were still there. And things that you might fear in the future are, in fact, already there. Perhaps only Einstein could have been comforted by that thought. <laughs> but he was. But it's something like some religious people feel about eternity, time being an eternity, so everything resting in God. You can see how a certain sort of contemplative peace could come over you if you thought that. <clears throat> or it might not. So, uh, what happened there is when people began to think critically about that doctrine, which was, uh, Martin Luther began to do it, but it didn't really happen until the 18th and 19th centuries. People began to think, maybe God is not timeless after all. So people were free to question uh, what the nature of God was like. And in the 19th century, there arose a, a very different uh, view of God, uh, that God, although beyond time, essentially, was also able to relate to time. So God could enter into time and have temporal relationships. So in a sense, there was change in God. And of course, if anybody believes in process theology or in um, books uh, about God which speak of God uh, suffering with the suffering of the world and responding to things that happen in the world with compassion, real compassion, and having real relationship, that's a post-19th century theological belief which did not exist in Christianity before the 19th century. In fact, at the Council of Chalcedon, uh, uh, everybody who believed that God changed, or that God, in the divine nature, suffered on the cross, was declared excommunicate. Now, if that happened today, there'd be nobody left in the church. <laughs> Because it's almost a, a given of Christian belief now that God, in the divine nature, God, God's self, suffered uh, with humanity on the cross. But just to say, that's a totally radical, heretical idea as far as traditional Orthodox Christianity is concerned. Uh, so most heretics don't even know they're heretics. They have no idea. Uh, 
And that's all right, because it's just a way in which thought has changed as you begin to think about new conditions of life. That's one of them. Uh, the important, I think the, what happened there was a, from the 18th and 19th centuries, a, a deepening perception of the importance of relationship that God was no longer thought, since God was that than which nothing greater could be conceived, everybody agreed about that, God was no longer thought to be immobile or impassive, unchanging so that nothing could actually make any difference to God. The whole universe made no difference to God because God wasn't changing. And in the 19th century, people began to feel, I think, on moral grounds, that this was an inadequate view of what perfection was. That if there was a perfect creator God, that God would suffer freely with creation, would be changed by things that happen in creation, and would in turn change them. So that was a moral perception which changed in the 19th century. And now it's become almost universal, not quite universal. I would guess among Protestant theologians it's almost universal. Uh, Catholic theologians still would like to hang on to the traditional view and they sometimes argue it quite vociferously and extremely well and that's okay but just to say well um, things have uh, developed quite a lot because of that freedom of thought which the Reformation happens to introduce. Maybe some of the reformers didn't want everybody to be free to think but what they were doing made it necessary that people would be free to think because people would have to read the Bible for themselves and decide what it meant. And in the end, they would uh, realize that it didn't mean what John Calvin said it meant, for example. And so you're inevitably onto the process of everybody interpreting the Bible for themselves, freedom of thought. Uh, and that's all right as long as people know that um, there are people who speak Greek and Hebrew better than we do, and maybe we should listen to what they say before we make a, a, a dogmatic pronouncement about it. So free thought, very important. Another thing, just while I'm thinking of changes in the concept of God, because I think a very important one, is changes that came about again in the 19th century because of the uh, Enlightenment, really. Uh, because of that uh, change of moral thinking to, to centre on human fulfilment rather than on a divine command which just descended out of some, some uh, realm beyond uh, space and time. And that idea of, of humanism gave rise to a different idea of punishment, which has become, why has hell disappeared now? Hell doesn't exist anymore. Well, limbo certainly doesn't exist anymore, because Pope Benedict XVI abolished it. I don't, if, you, if you know, he, he wrote a little document saying limbo doesn't exist, and I'm afraid Aristotle and Plato and all the other philosophers will have to go somewhere else. <laughs> That's where they were. Where are they now? Oh. Lost in time. Anyway. But the, the idea of punishment that changed was that everybody, I think, every philosopher, not just every Christian believer, every philosopher who wrote about it assumed that punishment was purely retributive. That is, if you do something wrong, you deserve to be punished. And it doesn't matter if it does you any good or if it does anybody else any good, you just deserve to be punished. The great philosopher Immanuel Kant, whom God preserve, uh, wrote a little book in which he said, if you are on a desert island with one other person, that person had committed a murder, and the world was just about to end, uh, the last thing you should do would be to hang that criminal. <laughs> Why? Because he deserves to hang. Right? 
And he said in a sentence which had become quite famous, uh, let justice reign though the heavens fall. And that was Kant's idea of justice. You must reap the last element of punitive punishment even if the world is about to end. Question, do you believe that? Well, I think most people who've passed through Enlightenment humanism don't believe that any longer. They certainly think that maybe if you do evil, you shouldn't just go to heaven and have a nice time, you know, so that God says, ah, oh, Hitler, yes, uh, um, I think you were quite a bad chap, but uh, here you are anyway, here's your milk and honey, you know, you might as well have it. You don't feel happy with that. There has to be some form of retribution, yes. But would it be purely retributive? Well, not in the English legal system, anyway. In the English legal system, it is stated in the English Penal Code that the purpose of punishment is reform. Now, it may be impractical, it may not actually work, but that's its purpose. So what you do is, of course, you do seek to deprive a person of the ordinary human rights and pleasures and privileges that they would have if they hadn't committed murder or whatever they've done, but your aim in all this would be to reform them, to bring them, if possible, back to penitence and to try to make amends for what they've done and by becoming uh, useful citizens again. That's the aim. Now, we can't do that in England, but God has infinite time. And if you think about that, then while you may not be able to guarantee that everybody will be reformed, they'll certainly have a chance. And that's the change that has come about in Christian ideas of punishment. Uh, that whereas you go to any medieval church and you see much the most interesting side of the paintings on the wall, if well, you've got paintings, is hell. You know, heaven's all right, but they're all standing there plucking away on harps and things. But you go to hell and they're doing the most fasc fascinating things there. Uh, <laughs> And they seem, people seem to take this all right. You know, people could be, you know, hang up on fish hooks for, for eternity, endlessly, you know, burn and alive, and, uh, and that was all right. And even Thomas Aquinas, whom I quite like most of the time, on one occasion, I'm sorry to tell you, Thomas Aquinas said, the pleasure of the blessed in heaven will be increased by their sight of the tortures of the damned. Well, people did think like that, apparently, in the 13th century. Uh, and we just have to say, some things happened in some human consciousnesses since then. And it's because of the Enlightenment. It's because of the thought of people like John Stuart Mill, who said, actually, the important thing is human flourishing. If humans go wrong, yes, they must be punished. But you must always have the ultimate thought that they could, and they should, and you should try to, bring them back so that they too can flourish. You shouldn't neglect the possibility of the flourishing of any human being. You could even extend that to any sentient being, any more than human being. Now, that would be a wide, moral, tolerant view. And I think it's a view which has come about through the Enlightenment. Has it come about through Christianity? Well, you have to say sometimes yes and sometimes no. John Stuart Mill wasn't a Christian. Uh, the Factory Reform Acts, which were sponsored by him, uh, were acts uh, which were not sponsored by Christians. So it was a movement of humanism. But on the other hand, isn't humanism a Christian uh, moral approach? That is to say, God has created human lives 
not so that they should suffer. What sort of reason could God have for making things which should suffer? God has created human lives so that they should flourish, so that they should realize the possibilities which God has placed in them. And that must be the basic Christian moral uh, view, uh, that every, uh, I'll stick to human beings, so I really mean more than human, but at least every human being should be able and should be helped to realize the possibilities which God has planted in them. So to have a society which is unjust in the sense of depriving people of the possibility of the flourishing which is proper to them as individuals is a radically evil society. And that seems to follow from Christian principles that you should love your neighbour as yourself. And it's pretty obvious if you think about it. If you love your neighbour as yourself, and if, as Jesus said, your neighbour is absolutely anybody, even a Samaritan or somebody whose beliefs are totally different and, from yours and anathema to you, if that's your neighbour, uh, then, of course, it's quite clear that you should be a humanist. You should be somebody who cares for the flourishing of every human life as a religious obligation. So I think it was a failure of Christianity uh, that, that uh, humane reform did not always come through Christians, though often it did, slavery, for example, and lots of other things too. Uh, uh, but that uh, the humanist view is in fact a Christian view, as Erasmus knew, as a, as a Christian who was probably the first major humanist. So again, there shouldn't be any um, disparity between humanism and Christianity, because Christianity holds or should hold, that the creator God wills the flourishing of every being that God has created. So the elements uh, that I've mentioned there have actually turned out to be three. One of them was a belief in a wise creator of the universe who has a purpose. I mean, a wise creator would have a purpose, would create the universe for some reason. Uh, secondly, a belief that you're free and encouraged to believe in an open way, critical inquiry. The third one is a concern for human flourishing. That the sciences are not just abstract theoretical things, they are concerned with improvement. And here's an interesting thought. Uh, should we, could we improve on nature? Now here, Christianity is perhaps in a rather ambiguous position, or some people feel it is. Some people feel that human beings are the best things they could ever be. They are the centre of the universe, and so we shouldn't ever change them. We shouldn't improve them. We can't improve anything. There were, there have been church pronouncements, for example, that vaccination is wrong, it's immoral. It's against the will of God, because if God wanted us not to have swine flu, he wouldn't have invented swine flu. So you just accept what you're given. And there is a trace of that in a lot of Christian thinking. You know, what happens to you is what God's doing to you, so you better not do anything about it. And I know people who won't take um, anesthetics or aspirins, because they think it's a trial sent from God. However, I think aspirins are sent from God myself, um, and uh, through the drug companies. And when Jesus said, you shall do greater things than I do, I think he was saying, I'm going to make sure there are medical uh, hospitals around in this place, and uh, that's how you shall do greater things than I do. But there is a fundamental question. How much do theists, how much does Christianity believe that things should be improved? And I want to claim it as a mark of liberal Christian faith, uh, that things can be improved and that we are called as humans to be co-creators with God. The word is only used once in the New Testament, synergos, co-creators, fellow workers, if you like, with God, to take a part in the creative process of the universe and to improve human life. 
some sorts of conservative thinkers in Christianity would oppose any improvement at all. Because, they say, well, if God has created it, it must be perfect. Uh, I think that's self-evidently false. Uh, God has created it, and it's far from perfect. Now, why that should be so, of course, is one of those problems to which you are invited to give a great deal of critical attention. But part of, part of the reason why that might be so is that actually for humans to learn gradually the nature of the world and to learn to be able to improve it and to bring it into greater accord with God's desire for fulfillment is part of the human task. If you live in an absolutely perfect world, there's nothing much for you to do. If you say, I want to build a beautiful house, then God will say, but you've already got a beautiful house. Let me build you a bigger one, instantaneously. You might say, well, I'm not sure about that. Maybe I want to do that myself. And if you're going to claim any room for creativity, true creativeness, for true learning and understanding, if there's any value in learning for yourself how to do things, even though you'll often fail, that's a sort of world in which you're going to have the possibility of making things better by your own actions, or making them worse by your own inactions. So you might say, um, on, on a fairly non-traditional or non-conservative view, it looks as though human beings have a positive vocation to help to change the world for better. And where uh, it was put, in fact, to me this part by uh, the person who was the chair of the Commission on um, Human Procreation in the Roman Catholic Church which may seem a bit of a surprise. Uh, you may, however, remember that that commission appointed by the Pope reported that contraception, artificial contraception, ought to be used. Uh, and the Pope simply said, no, it oughtn't. And that was the end of that. But the chairman of that commission, who recommended the use of contraception, of course, what they were arguing about was the place of natural law in Christian ethics. That is to say, uh, should you ever freely, directly, frustrate the purposes of nature. And the decision about uh, banning contraceptives, artificial contraceptives, was that would be a frustration of the purpose of nature, which was the procreation of children. So that was a conservative view, and it still is, of course. You say certain things are inherent in nature as God has created them, and you mustn't frustrate them. Do not touch uh, and this uh, theologian, whose name was Fuchs, uh, said to me, uh, well, it was a public lecture, he didn't just say it to me, he said, actually, there are two ways of looking at natural law, the law of nature which God has created. One is to say there's a big signpost there saying, keep out, you know, this is my land, keep out. But the other is to say there's a signpost there which says, go this way. And that's a very different approach. It's not that you never frustrate the purposes of nature, because nature produces the most terrible diseases, and swine flu, and lots of things, lots of flu. But, fortunately, uh, we have people who at least can give you flu injections and help to stop that sort of thing. So you can frustrate the natural things that nature does to you by improving them for good. You don't frustrate them for evil, you don't try and make things worse, but you try to counteract uh, the actions of viruses and so on. 
Why shouldn't that be part of a Christian vocation? And then you'd no longer say, never frustrate the purposes of nature. You should ask, you should say this. There are no purposes of nature. Nature is blind. Nature has no purposes. God has purposes. What are God's purposes in nature? They might be, since we are parts of nature, that we should make this world more like the place that God wants it to be. We have made it less the place that God wants it to be, but it's God's purpose that we should actually interfere in nature to improve it. So there's a basic question where I think a liberal view becomes important, and science is committed to technological change. That's what drives it very largely. Uh, and uh, the first scientists were interested in improving the human condition. And they came at a conflict with some conservative religious believers who opposed that. So, so the reason I'm saying, well, we could say that uh, a scientific worldview confirms liberal Christian faith, is it confirms the view that we have a creative part to play in nature. We're parts of nature, and we, we have a job to do in, in seeking to improve it. So those three elements, then, have been uh, that this is a, um, uh, a wise, creative universe. Secondly, that uh, within this universe... We shouldn't accept old beliefs without a radical, critical belief. So you're looking at some sort of liberal theism already, and, and then the view that maybe it's our vocation to uh, be co-creators in nature in improving it and bringing about uh, more of God's purpose in the world with the side effect, of course, and the, the unacceptable consequence that what we'd probably do is make the world worse. But that goes with the territory. You can't have one without the other. So, having said that, then, I haven't quite so got to the stage of saying, well, the whole of liberal Christian faith is confirmed by science. Of course not. Uh, because Christian faith involves particular historical claims about Jesus, and science has nothing to say about that. I mean, scientists aren't concerned with particular historical claims. History is not part of natural science. Also, Christianity is concerned with personal experience of God, personal experience of God in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And again, science doesn't deal with that. Science has no way of dealing uh, with elements of personal consciousness. And this brings me... Uh, to a point about the things where modern science does conflict with Christian faith. And the answer is where it's bad. <coughs> In fact, I would hold that modern science never conflicts with Christian faith at any point. But there are forms of Christian faith with which science does conflict. For example, if you don't accept evolution, that conflicts with science. Clearly, so that's bad. But I ignore that because nobody here uh, doesn't believe in evolution. Uh, but also, uh, there is something that scientists sometimes say, which is that they are committed to a materialistic worldview. And that's what lies behind Richard Dawkins' arguments. He's only got one argument in the end. And uh, that argument is that since science presupposes that materialism is true, and materialism is the view that things can only exist as publicly observable phenomena in space and time, since that's the truth about the world, and since God is not a phenomenon publicly observable in space and time, there cannot be a God. That's it. He wins by definition. And that's on page naught of his book. <laughs> he obviously doesn't bring it out because it's too obviously wrong. 
mean, nobody with any sense could accept that view. And no physicist does accept that view. Let me just state it again. You can see why a physicist couldn't accept the view. That nothing could exist except publicly observable phenomena in space and time. Therefore, as a consequence, there couldn't be anything which is not publicly observable in space and time, and there couldn't in particular be a consciousness, the mind of God, which exists without any physical side effects or consequence, like a brain. There is no cosmic brain, so there can't be a cosmic mind. Now, Richard Dawkins thinks that's a powerful argument. I think it's one of the weakest philosophical arguments I've ever heard. The conclusive refutation of it is immediate and simple. No one could ever possibly know that nothing could exist except things publicly observable in space and time. Full stop. There's just no way of knowing that. How would you demonstrate it? Uh, to say, even to say something like there are no unicorns is not demonstrable. There might be some. There might be some in some alternative universe. I mean, how do we know there are no unicorns? Uh, we could say there are no unicorns in this room because we can look around and see it. But if you're talking about the whole universe of possibilities, and remember a lot of physicists these days believe in a multiverse. That is, they believe there are millions and millions of different universes. Some of them, some of these physicists, believe that every possible universe exists. That's my favourite theory because it's totally lunatic. <laughs> uh, there are people here in Oxford, quantum physicists who believe this. It's called the many worlds theory. And you say every possible universe exists. Well, if that's true, then there is certainly some universe in which there was a virgin birth and a resurrection. Oh. So the most conservative Christian view possible is true in some universe. <laughs> and it might be this one for all you know. But if you're going to talk about a multiverse at all, even if it sounds very peculiar, you're already committed to saying there are things which exist which are not publicly observable and in space-time. All these other universes. A universe, a cosmos, a space-time system. Right? We think of our universe as a sort of balloon, right? and we're on the surface of it, if you like. And you say, that's space-time. But that's a finite. Space-time is finite. It's unbounded, but it's finite. So there you are. So, if you say, where is space-time? It's obviously not anywhere. So, of course, you can imagine an atheist saying, oh, well, if it's not anywhere, it doesn't exist. You're just playing with words. But physicists aren't just playing with words. They're saying space-times do exist, but they don't exist anywhere. Right? Because where's are all in space. Right? So there are lots of different spaces, uh, but they don't, none of them exist in space. So immediately physics refutes the, that easy version of hard materialism that there couldn't be, there couldn't be anything in space enough. Because physicists say, not only could there be, there probably are. And let's think about consciousness for a minute. Consciousness. What is, what is consciousness? Um, well, it's the immediate awareness of objects. And thoughts. There are all sorts of objects. There are thoughts, there are feelings... There are bodily sensations, uh, and there are objects in the physical world. There are all sorts of objects. But is it true that consciousness is no more than states of the brain, physical states? Francis Crick, 
said that it was. But Francis Crick, let me tell you a story about Francis Crick, just because it's a nice story. He was at Churchill College, Cambridge. And Churchill sent some money, Winston, to build a chapel at Churchill College. Maybe you know the story. And uh, it's a true story. And Francis Crick said, if you build a chapel at this college, I will resign my fellowship. I'll leave. And so they decided not to build a chapel of Churchill College. They built a chapel at Churchill College, <laughs> which is down the field. You, know, you, go, you leave the college, you walk down the field, and there's the chapel. Right? But he still resigned. And he said, uh, I think it's disgraceful you should have a chapel here, this extinct religion. And Churchill wrote back, uh, to him and said, actually, you don't have to go to chapel. I mean, I'm just giving the money for this. You just have a chapel. People who want to use it can, but you don't have to go. And Francis Crick sent a letter to Winston Churchill enclosing a five-pound note and saying, Dear Winston, I enclose a donation for the building of a brothel at Churchill College. <laughs> It's just a facility for those who like that sort of thing. <laughs> Churchill never replied. But the five pound note was sent back. Anyway, so Francis Crick was certainly an atheist. And he said, one reason I, I went in for looking at the, the nature of DNA was to disprove that there was anything spiritual around. It's all material. So that was a strong motivation for him. And he read a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis, uh, in which he said, you, all your thoughts and perceptions and beliefs are nothing but, nothing but, you always know it's going to be wrong if somebody says that, but you are nothing but the movements of electrons in your brain. That's all you are. So that's what a great scientist can tell you about the nature of human life. They should stick to their own field, really. Because if you ask the question, is consciousness nothing but the electrical activity of neurons in a physical brain? Is it nothing but that? Well, you might agree that it's nothing but, but if you do agree, that's not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement. And the philosophical statement that conscious events are identical with brain events is called central state materialism. And it's a view which is held by a tiny minority of professional philosophers throughout the world. Hardly any philosopher believes it. Some good ones do. Dan Dennett, you may have heard of. Uh, there are some others too, but a tiny minority. Why don't many philosophers believe it? Because it just seems incredible. It doesn't seem to be right uh, that your awareness now of the words I'm speaking, of the colours in this room, that those are nothing but the movements of electrons in your brain. Because if you ask the question, what are the properties of electrons, you'll get spin, charge, mass, position, velocity. That's what you get. But nothing about, um, you know, thoughts about the nature of consciousness. Where, where would they occur? They wouldn't occur. A physical account doesn't include any account of what things mean, of understanding of what thoughts you're having. And, of course, it is not the case, despite what we read in the press. In, in, in my newspaper, it said the other day, scientists can now read minds. It was an absurd thing to say. It's totally false. 
uh, all it meant was scientists can tell, and this is interesting, uh, that which parts of your brain are electrically activated when you think about specific things, like you call up a mental image of a face, they can tell you which part of your brain is electrically active at that time. But they couldn't uh, tell me what I'm just about to say, or even what I've just said to myself without telling you, because it was too absurd. Right? They couldn't say that. There just uh, are private conscious events, private experiences, and we each of us know that our own experience can never be fully communicated to anybody else. But it's something we know. We have knowledge of our experience, of our past. It may be incorrect, we may be wrong, but nobody else knows what it's like to be us. And that's a philosophical remark, of course, but it, it, it makes the point that uh, the materialistic view is not a scientifically established view. It's just a presupposed philosophical view. And we ought to expose it for what it is, a very minority view that no respectable philosopher throughout the whole of history has ever held until the 20th century. There's not one. I challenge anybody in this room to name uh, a, a philosopher who occurs on the reading list of any philosophy course before the 20th century who's a materialist. They all thought it was too silly to think about. Now, why people think about it now is, of course, because of the huge success of the neurosciences and artificial intelligence. So there are some problems associated with it, but they're not scientific problems, they're philosophical. So I would say, um, that's why I say that science is not incompatible with Christian belief. It's the philosophy, it's some sorts of philosophy. So what you have to ask is, well, what sort of philosophy is it that denies even the possibility of consciousness without a physical manifestation? It denies even the possibility of a god, a being who could have awareness without having a brain. And I think that's just too dogmatic. Saying we don't know there's not a god isn't, of course, proving there is a god. And I'm not trying to prove there is a god. All I've been doing this morning is trying to say that science actually has been the great encouragement and motivation for scientific belief. It's not a, an accident that occurred in a Protestant Christian context. It's escaped from that context. Science is now pretty neutral about its beliefs, but it still believes in an intelligible, comprehensible universe. And uh, to that extent, I think uh, liberal Christianity finds a confirmation, not a proof, but a confirmation in that the sort of universe liberal Christians might expect there to be, a universe in which there are free agents living as parts of a material universe which also has consciousness as one of its uh, sets of properties, a universe which is intelligible and rational and elegant and comprehensible, that's the universe that science seems to show. And modern science seems to contradict the views of philosophers like David Hume, who said anything can happen, reason won't lead you anywhere, you can't talk about the beginning of the universe. Science actually raises the question, what is the explanation for the nature of this universe? Why is it the way it is? What is the reason? And among those reasons, one of the most powerful has to be because there is a conscious and intelligent being who had the purpose of creating, out of all the possible universes there could be, this particular universe. And that's a large part of the Christian claim. And that, that's why I would say that liberal Christianity and modern science, especially physical, fundamental science, have what Weber called an elective affinity 
with one another. They go naturally together and reinforce one another. And that's a point we should stress very strongly in saying that as Christians we want to accept the best scientific views of the universe but not the philosophical views of some of the more uh, rabid scientists. Thank you very much. to take uh, rude comments. Comments of insult. No. I just have to pick a random one. Yes. I think there is no one on earth who can fail to cherry-pick the Bible. And um, you probably know I have written a book about fundamentalism and how it cherry-picks from the Bible and misses out bits it doesn't like. Uh, and we all have to do this because there are bits of the Bible none of us like. They're different bits. We all dislike different bits. Uh, but one that fundamentalists miss out, for example, is uh, the letters of Peter, where it quite clearly talks about Jesus descending to the world of the dead and freeing them from sin. And they were evil. They were totally, these were totally corrupt people who had been killed in the days of Noah. Well, that's what it says. You, you can say that's a legend, okay. But the fact is, they, fundamentalists are going to cherry-pick that out. <laughs> They're going to say, oh, that's a mistake. It means something else or something. Uh, so... Cherry, I wonder why that expression got going, actually, cherry-picking. Uh, what it means is you have to interpret most of the Bible in terms of some parts of it that you think are the most important or the most decisive. Now, for me, as a Christian, I think it goes without saying that the Gospels are going to be more important than the book of Leviticus. Right? So it's not a difficult issue, really. You say it's just obvious that if, if it says in the book of Leviticus you ought to kill a few thousand people, and if in the Gospels Jesus says you must love your enemy, I can see a problem there. <laughs> um, so, and maybe the best answer to that problem, well, there's been some sort of development, you know. And they're not all equally good uh, bits of the Bible. And, and you have to show how views of hell or life after death and views of God have actually developed. You know. I think personally it's pretty clear that there are polytheistic elements in the Bible. Um, our God is a great king above all gods, right? so there are polytheistic elements. But by the 8th century BC, uh, the prophets had decided there's only one god and the rest are just images. So you can, you can see these developments. So I just don't think you can read the Bible without uh, preferring some bits as more important than others. Christians do it to the whole of the Old Testament anyway. 
They interpret it in a way that no Jew ever would. That's not fair. So you have to say, yeah, we're all, we're all doing this because the Bible is the book of our believing community and these are the things we think are really important which have occurred in the Bible. Uh, and I have no trouble in picking out the Gospels as um, parts which are going to be the parts in terms of which you must discard quite a lot of other stuff that there is. Uh, it's a question that always comes up from conservative Christians, though. Aren't you cherry-picking? And uh, I think you just have to try and convince them that they are cherry-picking as well. And they're cherry-picking some of the nasty bits. That's the old thing about it. <laughs> they like hell. Why does every possible? Why does some people think that every possible universe exists? Yes, it's put very well uh, in a little book uh, by the astronomer Royal, um, who uh, called our. Mm, no, I forgot what it's called. Never no, no mind. I'll, I'll be able to remember it afterwards. Uh, and he puts the point uh, that there is a problem about this universe. The problem is, he thinks Mark, uh, Martin Rees thinks. Uh, this universe can't come about by chance. That's ridiculous. He, do, he doesn't think any scientist can believe that. Chance is just not an explanation. He thinks God is an explanation, but he doesn't like that explanation. Okay? So you have to have an explanation. Why is this universe, which is so particularly fine-tuned for life, such that every um, you know, element of it, like, for example, the force of gravity, the specific force of gravity, has to be just what it is to produce a universe that produces complex carbon-based beings like us. So the whole fine-tuning argument works for him and raises the question, how can such a very unlikely universe come about? And the answer is, well, this universe wouldn't be improbable at all if every possible universe existed. Then this universe would be certain, be bound to exist. So it answers the question, why does this universe have the very peculiar character it does? And the answer is, it's not peculiar, it's just one out of infinite universes bound to exist. So that's why, one of the reasons uh, why people posit the many worlds hypothesis. The, the, there's another one, I don't want to go too far into that, but in quantum theory, um, you say that electrons are in different positions at the same time. Okay, they're superposed. They have lots of they're in lots of different places at the same time. One way of interpreting this is to say that different versions of the electron are in different universes. <laughs> Maybe if you like that, if you like anything. <laughs> so anyway, that's the that's the many that's the many worlds theory. So that's why it's believed. There are some reasons, but it, the reason for not accepting it is there's no way of testing it. How do you know if there's another universe? Um, and it's just too extravagant. It's promiscuous. You think, why, why have so many universes as that? Why not just have one God who's thought of all these universes but only created one of them? It's much simpler. <laughs> and Martin Rees says, yes, yes, true, but it's God. <laughs> right? So why not God? And I, incredibly, almost, I have been asked to conferences on, uh, on quantum theory as, as a theologian because they want to hear they genuinely want to hear how God might be used as a hypothesis. And they listen. Then they go and laugh in the bar, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> but 
at any rate, I think God is a reasonable hypothesis. Because I wouldn't lie, I'm not suggesting we use God as a scientific hypothesis. I'm just saying, if you're going to go in from many worlds, infinite numbers of universes, um, well, as I said before, you're going to get one with a virgin birth in it. And liberals don't like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Thank you for reminding us that Aquinas doesn't hold with God as being a separate substance, but as being itself. Do you think Islam is wider, wiser than Christianity in barring any representation? And I wonder if that hasn't misled so many people into rejecting the notion of God. Yes, I do think it's wiser not to have any representation of God. Yes, I do. And Jews, of course, don't allow any representations of God, too. Yeah, I think it was a great mistake. I mean, I think the Sistine Chapel is a disaster. <laughs> it's not just a restoration, either. Yeah, I really do. I mean, it's really... And I know Sunday schools in which I have heard it said that that children are supposed to draw God. And I really think that's not good. Yep. Well, <coughs> existentialism is very much out of fashion. You don't hear much about it these days. But um, that's, that's not an argument against it. It's just a fact. Uh, one of my favorite theologians is John Macquarie. Uh, and John Macquarie um, wrote a book called An Existentialist Theology, which I think is still very much worth reading. And I do think that's important because existentialism focuses on what it's like to live through a human life from the inside. It focuses very much on feelings, emotions, etc. Uh, and I think that's part of, of what it is uh, to exist. So I think existentialism is, is important. I haven't mentioned it this morning because um, science doesn't concern itself with such things. And I, I think that's, it's not a lack in science, but science has an area. It only deals with publicly observable physical things. Uh, and... Um, so the whole world of inner human experience is missed out, in a way. It's, it's just not the province of science. But I think it is important. Cognitive psychology, since the 1960s, has tried to deal with consciousness. But it, it doesn't, in my view, do so as um, fully and as sensitively as some of the existentialist thinkers do. Yeah, so I think existentialism is important. The trouble is, like all these philosophical movements, it gets associated with particular people. You mentioned Kierkegaard, but most people will probably think of Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. Uh, and they have a very non-religious approach and a very pessimistic, I suppose you might say, approach to human life. Uh, and, and so existentialism as a school has become associated with that pessimistic, meaningless outlook on life. You know, there's no meaning, you just invent your own meaning, etc. But Kierkegaard was a different sort of person, and uh, I think there's life... It's often called... Uh, something still happens in the discipline of religious studies called existential phenomenology. And in fact, that's what John Paul II, the Pope, taught when he was at the University of Krakow, existential phenomenology. 
Uh, you can find traces of it in his encyclicals, if you're so disposed. <laughs> anyway, it's... Um, in fact, John Paul II published his doctoral dissertation as the encyclical um, Veritatis Splendor, thereby making his dissertation the first infallible doctoral dissertation. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, there are quite a lot of... I, I said there were no materialist philosophers in the classical canon, but there are plenty of... There are atheists, <laughs> or people who are called atheists, and perhaps the best known, two best known, are Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, especially Nietzsche. Uh, and in fact, I would, strangely it may sound, say that neither of them were atheists in a straightforward sense. They certainly believed there was some reality underlying the appearances of space and time that was deeper and gave an insight into the true nature of reality. So one way you might put this is say, well, they have a notion of God, but it's so different from the Christian notion, and so opposed to it in Nietzsche's case, that they'd rather not call it God. Uh, and I think you might say the same of Buddhists, that, that most Buddhists actually believe in a real nirvana as a reality, which is not just subjective, a reality of wisdom, compassion, and bliss. And that, for me, is what God is, but a Buddhist would probably rather not use the word God, because for a Buddhist, a God is a spirit who, you know, like a car parking attendant, will answer your prayers. Uh, and so I think that part of the dispute here comes because people see God uh, as this rather arbitrary person who will do things for the people he likes, and he'll torture the rest forever. Uh, and so, in reaction against that, uh, they would um, do something else. I think Schopenhauer is definitely in that camp. And if you ask about Nietzsche, he's a very complicated person, but if you ask what he means about the will to life, it's not a million miles away from the, the sense of a, a suprahuman creativity in which we might participate if we are awakened to its existence. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there are, lot, there are lots of people who, because of very anthropomorphic ideas of God, uh, look for other ways of expressing the depth of the spiritual. I think that's why a lot of people in Britain say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. But actually, they are religious. They just uh, haven't been around long enough to form a religion yet. <laughs> but it'll all go wrong. <laughs> Too much of an intentionality to God, and I'm wondering 
I think traditionally there is a balance because people who take the apophatic way, who, who say that everything you say about God in the sense in which you're understanding it is false because God is so much greater than that. Those people also have a cataphatic aspect to their thought and they say, well, it's better to say that God is good than to say that God is not good. Okay, so, um, so what you're saying is, it's as if you're pointing in the direction of greater perfection and so you know what direction you're going in but you say, I can't really imagine what it would be like to get there. It's so much greater than I can possibly uh, put into human concepts. So those two aspects always do go together. Uh, so it would be correct on this view to say that God is, wills the creation, intends it, and brings it about. So he has knowledge, purpose, intention. But it would be wrong to say, once you've said that, uh, you've understood that God is a mind rather like yours. <laughs> right. uh, and so those concepts are correct, but they, they need to, may need to be reinterpreted in a way that we can scarcely imagine. God is always greater than uh, we imagine. But some of our imaginations are better than others. Right. And I, I think that's a very traditional view. I myself think on that traditional view it should always have been said that God is temporal or relates temporally to things in time and that was a philosophical mistake that they made by saying because we can't understand God he must not be in time I don't think that follows but that's my own hobby horse <laughs> sorry <laughs> Oh, yes. Okay. Could questioners sort of make a public statement to the whole room, especially turn around or something? Keep turning around. <laughs> yes, I'm, uh, I mean not to pick out any particular section of the audience, and I'm looking for a certain amount of uh, gender equality here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So is the, is the question um, that I've talked about God as mind, but uh, it's more typical perhaps of Christian tradition to talk about God as love, uh, and, uh, and shouldn't, shouldn't I say more about that perhaps? Ah, no. Okay. Well, I certainly uh, don't think that love is incompatible with reason or that it's necessarily irrational. I think there is a rational love, and a rational love which is a concern for the flourishing of its object. So if you rationally love something, you're happy in its presence. And even when it's not present, you desire its well-being. And for me, that is love. So, uh, you couldn't love without a mind, certainly. You have to know what it is that you're loving. 
you have to know what its nature is and what would make it flourish. So these are all mental attributes. And I'd want to say love is one of the most important attributes of reason. Uh, and I think what goes wrong here is that people think of reason as a sort of abstract, logical, desiccated thing, which is only doing pure mathematics. <laughs> no. uh, whereas reason, in a, in a fuller sense, is, uh, involves imagination. Uh, that a reasonable life is not a life spent doing pure mathematics. Uh, a reasonable life is one which is well-ordered towards obtaining the goods which a human life should be centred upon. And that's a matter of human flourishing. So, as Aristotle said, uh, the good is what reason aims at. And so to aim at that good is a reasonable love. And in the case you mentioned of, of loving a dying child, well, that's the most reasonable thing you could do because you're aiming at as much well-being as you can bring about or as little harm as you can possibly cause to um, uh, a, a person, a human person. And that would be very reasonable. So I, I just want a, a higher sense of reason, which includes imagination, and which says reason isn't just about mathematical techniques, Reason is about ordering your life to what is truly good. Yeah. One, one more question, I think I'm told. So let me, I know uh, I'm looking around for balance again. Balance, balance. Okay, let's have a bit of balance. <laughs> if you don't mind. I'll repeat this. I'll repeat it. I'll repeat it. The whole universe seems to be, in their opinion, designed to produce these nice creatures, human beings, on one small satellite, one small star, okay. for one very short period of time. And yeah. I find that most irrational. Right. In right. What worries you about me and people like me? Uh, is that we think uh, that the whole of the universe has been constructed to produce a few bits of uh, happiness for some little uh, muddy things like us on the surface of a tiny little planet. It doesn't last very long, so it seems pointless and irrational. We don't even know what else there is. And we don't even know what else there is in the universe. Okay, how do I respond to that? Um, I... They say size matters on some television advertisements, but I, I don't think it matters so much, really. Um, and the universe is very big, but if it's all made of empty space, I'm not impressed by that, particularly. And I am impressed by a statistic or a finding from modern cosmology, which is that if human or intelligent carbon-based life was to originate in the universe, then the universe would have to have expanded uh, and formed complex uh, relationships of atoms, molecules, cells, and so on over a period of 100 and, uh, well, about approximately 13.4 million years. That's how long it would take for complex organic life forms to exist in the universe, according to physics. Uh, if the universe has been expanding as fast as it could for 13.7 billion years, then it would be 13.7 light years across, and it is. So the reason for so much empty space is to have me here. 
<laughs> so take that. <laughs> I'm saying is I don't think the length of time the, the life of a butterfly is worthwhile it's just worthwhile putting that so why not us as well Well, if that's the reason for the universe, and that's the reason we're here, and we've just taken that, then I think we're going to go home happy, Keith. But uh, that was a, a tremendous uh, panoramic view, a context in which uh, Christian faith can flourish, which is free thinking, embraces rationality. We're co-creators with, with God in making the world a better place. And that's just an inspirational view of what it is to be a Christian in the world and, and what a powerful message that is for us to take ourselves to uh, understand what that might, might mean for us as individuals, but also impart that to others as well as a, uh, a wonderfully exciting vision of what it is to be spiritual and religious uh, and a thinking liberal Christian in our world today. Uh, apparently above the organ uh, in here, wherever that's cited, there's uh, an image not only of truth descending, but up here there's an image of ignorance being banished, as uh, so I was told by one of the, the curators here. So I think we've had some ignorance banished. There's a lot of food for thought. Keith has given me the lecture, which will go uh, on our website, so you can again uh, digest all that uh, we've been given this morning as we've been thinking about what it is to have a credible faith that is a, a thinking faith that is compatible with the, the best of science. So, Keith, we are truly grateful to you for an elective affinity, what a lovely phrase that there is and exists between science uh, and religious faith. We are really grateful to you and once again thank you for all that you've given to us today.